school of sardines swims, with light glancing off their wings, flashing silver in the sky. Against the blue, as if the sky was sea, and their feathers scales. As they turned side on and side on again, the light flashed its brilliant semaphore. The flock was beautiful, a constantly morphing shape. Round, then elongated, oval, and back to round again. Nothing jagged or sharply angled. The shape bulged like a fat raindrop, and narrowed like it was holding its breath. Undulating pulses flowed through it like sea grasses combed by water. This then. Is the fluidity of air a perfect example of group mind? There was no one single leader. Individuals stretched the group, and the rest followed as if joined by invisible elastic. Whichever direction it moved, the flock maintained coherence. Each individual, a part of a wonderfully dynamic and mutable whole. Fish in the Sky, Anne M. Carson. A three-year-old girl crouches by the gutter. Some people stop to watch as she carefully inspects a pigeon lying there and asks, "Is he dead, Daddy?" How to break it to the child? Directly is best. Yes, darling. I'm afraid he is. Pregnant pause, during which the crowd takes in this poignant moment, the child for the first time absorbing the tragedy of death, just as her own life shines before her. She straightens to walk away. Oh well, she says. There's lots more pigeons. The cat has caught a bird again in broad daylight. A silver eye now closed in a towel on the washing machine. Does it twitch? Is that a pulse? Or is it just my own hand shaking? Far away, the kids are buzzing like bees around the blue wren nest, a deep cave of grass at the side of the ditch. In the ruckus of cicadas and screams, somehow it is all blown away. And next, when they return, there are only sticks and leaves. In broad daylight, Catherine Evans. There may still be plenty of pigeons in the city streets, but overall our bird populations are disappearing. The sticks and leaves with which they make their homes all blown away. Each year the news reports are the same: seabirds, woodland, forest, grassland, heathland, wetland birds, all in decline. The eastern curlew and latham snipe, the wandering albatross. The black-winged stit and the masked lapwing, the fairy tern and hooded plover, 
hooded robin and jackie winter, whipbirds, bristlebirds, scrubbirds. These are just a few of Australia's birds that are either critically endangered, threatened, or simply diminishing at a steady pace. Let's just draw a direct comparison where the country that's destroyed most of their wildlife, you go to Japan and in Tokyo they've got bird noises being broadcast over the speakers. What does that tell you about the presence of birds in our lives? That's a, a sort of a horror scenario really, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? They do. The feeling of being uplifted, be it either conscious or subliminal, is there for, I'd say, most people. I think you know, they're a vital part of our environment, not just for what they do in terms of you know, their natural activities, but the benefits that we as humans get from them. There are conservation programs, attempts to somehow stop the decline, like the 17-year project for the elegant and darting Regent Honeyeater. Birds Australia volunteers plant trees in the Capity Valley in New South Wales. These recreate habitat, though it takes almost 20 years for the trees to be mature enough to support the birds. And Birds Australia also works with Michael Shields at Taronga Zoo with an increasingly successful breeding and release program. These are acts of science, but they're also acts of faith and of hope. The birds are worth saving because there used to be so many of them. They used to be seen in hundreds and hundreds, and now they're hardly seen at all. So firstly, they're worth saving just because if we don't do something, then they'll just disappear forever and they'll be gone. Um, the other reason is because they're what we call a flagship species. So they represent only one animal in a very diverse habitat. So if we can save this bird and we can save this bird's habitat, then that means that we can also save many other species. We can get people to stop cutting trees down and plant more trees, then we'll save many different species. This is Regent Honeyeater Diary 1, May 5th, uh, Chilton Mount Pilot National Park in Victoria. We're waiting for the birds to arrive from Taronga Zoo at the moment. It's been a six-hour journey for them, and I guess we're anxious that they'll arrive not too stressed. Uh, we've got about a dozen people in the camp, a few volunteers, some zoo staff who'll be helping myself, Dean Ingleson from Birds Australia, to coordinate the release. The key foraging trees in the park flowered a little early this year so it's taken a while for us to find the best part of the park to let them go but we're now confident we've got it right uh, and we've recently found a couple of wild birds in the area so that's been great. Uh, the best part of this news though is that one of those wild untagged birds is speaking a kind of Taronga trash talk, the sort of mixed up slang calls that the captive bred birds uh, make up at the zoo and we're hoping that this bird might be the result of a pairing between a wild bird and one from the 2008 release. Uh, I'm sending off a recording of the calls I got from that bird, uh, so we'll await those results, and uh, also now we're just waiting uh, for the birds to arrive for this release. Birds are pushed out by non-native species and killed by feral animals. Habitat is lost from logging, from fire, from overgrazing, from irrigation and a consequent lack of water. Where can the birds go? Where can they nest, feed, 
breed. So we're planting 3,000 trees on this occasion, 3,000 trees and shrubs. We always select trees that produce the nectar. We've got some mid-height trees like the uh, cypress pine and the currayong, and we've got the smaller shrubs like wattles and a shrub called blackthorn, but it's absolutely marvellous for bird habitat because uh, when I was here a month ago, uh, there are two finches nest in, in blackthorn, really good for holding the land together and it's protection for small birds, especially finches, if they're trying to get away from a larger bird, a raptor. Cool, shall we wander back? Yes, yes. Winter. Ravens. Windy sky. Deep green moss gleams on the elms. The last sentinel leaves have left their usual stations to rattle and scuttle, drift and pile. They've gone to earth, leaving the job to the new recruits. Still wrapped up dreaming in their buds, A lone honey-eater rests in the tree. Winter, Judy Fander. Have you been able to measure the impact of these 80-odd thousand trees being planted on the Regent honey-eater population? I guess the short answer is no. Well, A, because they're too young for them to be feeding on it yet. And there's a, an extreme difficulty in actually trying to actually monitor the region honeyeater population. So it's virtually impossible to get any sort of accurate handle on the population. Because it's so highly mobile, it's very hard to um, actually know how many there actually are. Yes. And I mean, I think at least now that we are 17 years down the track, people can see some of these early plantings that are really starting to look quite good, starting to resemble something like the original sort of woodland habitat. To me, that's a tremendous act of faith. Yes, well, I mean, we know that habitat loss has been the key factor in the decline of the region honey. So I guess whatever can be done to, to enhance habitat, particularly in terms of providing habitat with those species that they do feed on and in areas that are known region honey to breeding areas, and that are highly cleared, even relatively small areas of revegetation could be quite significant. This is Regent Honeyeater Diary 2, May 6th, Chilton Mount Pilot National Park in Victoria. Uh, the first group of birds have arrived uh, and they're all well after their journey. Uh, often think as the plane carrying them lands at uh, Albury Airport that this is probably the fastest migration any Regent Honeyeater will ever make. Um, the mood around the camp is uh, one of excitement. They were busy today getting the birds fitted with their transmitters uh, and settled into their holding tents for the acclimatisation period. Uh, it's always such an amazing feeling to handle these rare and beautiful birds and also not hard, I guess, to think back to the times years ago when at times you get them in thousands in the right areas, in the right conditions. Uh, but I guess we just hope that this program is part of the return to those glory days.
Have you ever caught a feather from a flying bird? Be ready. Be ready to catch the gift. Have you heard them coming? The rainbow lorikeets shriek through the air. I feel them in my body, coming from behind in a rush of cries rising from my spine to my crown. They explode into colour above me, away from me, red, blue, yellow, green, bright in the sunlight. I see them hooning through the city, hurtling through the chasms between buildings, crying out their high, harsh voices, calling in their parrot gang. The lorikeets have only recently come to the city, to the tall gums growing there. Every year there are more, but the city takes no notice of their wild and colourful sweep. I see them slouching through the city, slinking into secret spaces. The ones addicted to colour, the chromas, the paint sniffers. They find hidden places to inhale the scent of paint. Sometimes the paint seeps out of their pores, their skin taking on a faint sheen of red, yellow, blue, green. And every year there are more. My artist friend tells me what it feels like. First you will hear it, an echoing, an oncoming. Then comes colour, rainbows, rainbows of colour. The paint takes the kids away from the streets, flying through the glittering, multicoloured world. They're spread-eagled over blue stone cobbles, in the spaces between buildings, in the narrow laneways where the sun doesn't reach. Amid spills of paint like shed feathers, this is where they fall. Be ready to catch what falls. The gifts are falling all around us. Truth, feathers, children, the wild. Rainbow Lorikeets, Maya Ward. What do birds mean to us, as individuals, as communities, and as a nation? As we head towards a future with far fewer birds than we have today, will we be diminished? Will we grieve? Will we even notice? I'm Jane Ullman and I've been working with bird recordings and recording in the bush for many years now, uh, probably nearly 30. I can tell you something that I felt, I think it was 2006. 2006 I travelled to the desert. It was a year of great drought, as many of our years are, and Hollis and I were recording. We got up every morning before dawn to record, and we recorded almost nothing. It was like silent spring. We were there in uh, August, September, I think, and there were almost no birds. And it was absolutely... It was frightening. It was frightening and so sad to be in a beautiful gorge. No water, no birds. And a dawn with no birds is, mm, I don't know, 
an unfilled space. Did it feel like a, a kind of a holocaust? You know, like there'd been a, a slaughter or a... It felt abandoned. It felt as though that whole area had been abandoned. And in a sense it had, because no water, no life. I'm Joan Bentrooper-Boimer, and I'm working as an academic uh, currently at the School of Earth and Environmental Science at James Cook University here in Cairns in North Queensland. I mean, a time when we really get to feel this is a time when, for example, a natural disaster has occurred. After natural disasters like cyclones, when you get this massive winds coming through a landscape, the people, the local community will talk about having been through that event and the enormous loud sounds of the winds, you know, from 240 kilometre cyclonic winds coming through. And then you'll get a period where after the event, the next day, you almost get a complete silence in the landscape. And the first thing that people seem to talk about is the lack of hearing birds. You know, for them it suddenly is, where have they gone? What has happened? This is a real test to show how people respond when birds disappear as a consequence of a natural disaster, which could be mirroring what we are potentially going to look forward to in the future when landscapes are devoid of species. When I think about what a bird is, this collection of flittering of feathers, this lightness of bones, I think birds are a little fragment of the landscape with wings. Their birdy soul, their essence, is so closely tied to the essence of a place as to be an expression of it. To watch them is to watch the ancient stones take flight momentarily the trees given wings. Though an individual bird lives and dies in a short period, collectively bird souls are the ancient soul of the country, fluttering and flickering over the ground, or keeping watch, as the raptors do from a great height, picking out the weak in the indifferent way of the wild. Brahmani Kite, Dampier Peninsula. Morning lazes in the shallows, stretches towards noon with the tide. The sun wheels its barrow of embers across sky. On the headland, the Brahmani stakes the tallest gum. His muscular intelligence flexes against day's drag. Plots sun's progress, water's slow leech. Diligent in solitude, nothing escapes the rove of his minesweeper mind, the peel of his eyes. A wimbrel in camouflage colours, looking long distance, enters his airspace. From the kite, a whinny ripples warnings across the splendour of the bay. Silence bulges, but does not burst, nor does the wimbrel falter. His wings maintain their binary grasp, dipping in and out, air oars shipping his body south. 
Later, the Brahmani lifts from the branch, clean into air on hunger's mission, a russet scarf disappearing into blue, painting a perfect miniature on sky's clear canvas. Brahmani Kite, Anne M. Carson. What is the essence of a bird to you? What is it that makes a bird, bird? Oh, a beating heart, beating wings, here and there, and a communication. And if we get past the external, the first call we hear, which is probably an alarm call when we hear a bird in the, in the forest or something like that, and hear, oh, something like a crow, with its subsong, a baby crow practicing and not calling out, ah, ah. they're going, oral, oral, oral. An owl can swoon. A baby raven can recognize a plastic wrapped frozen chicken as dinner. Karawans may sing softly to themselves. It may appear kookaburras can forget how to fly. Satin bowerbirds are ballet dancers. A magpie may play possum. Cut my heart open and watch the feathers spill out. Father and son, willow. If they're there and they have a reason to call, we hear them. And so, in a sense, birds for me are like a sounding of the acoustic environment. If it's a sound in a reflective space, a gorge that's surrounded by rocks, for example, there's that wonderful, wonderful echoic thing. In a very open environment where the air is very clear, once again, the call of a bird will sound that space. And it's the sounding of the space which gives you information about a place in an auditory sense. Back in the 1970s, Murray Schaefer wrote a book called The Tuning of the World. And one of the things that he says in that book is that the more we lose of the unpolluted acoustic space, the poorer we are. And so I think that the loss of birds, because they are such a vocal part of our world, will be very noticeable in the way that the loss of frog species has been around the country because they are singers and callers. They are creatures to whom we listen. With clacking heels you breeze through parkland towards the obligations of the day. By an iron gate you pause noting within a shrub a shadowy fidget of birds. For a minute their presence holds you, like breath, a poem unfolding. You hear the slough of leaves, the snap of sticks and beak, the snare of claws. A sudden whir of wings thrums like a heartbeat. Wide-eyed you stoop and peer into their green marquee. Rarest of fortune, 
to observe this tiny theatre of birds. See how they weave, collaborating twists of twigs and vine into a perfect mesh of form and line. Perhaps they see your boots or hear you breathe, for now they stop and wait for you to pass, and as they pause, you wonder if they too are ambushed by a poem about you. What bird is that? Marion Waller. This is Regent Honeyeater Diary 3, May 12th, Chilton Mount Pilot National Park in Victoria. Uh, today was a massive day. Um, the last group of birds were released in front of several media contingents and about 30 or so of our fantastic radio tracking volunteers. Uh, the birds released uh, so far performed flawlessly. A few of them took a couple of hours to leave the holding tents, I guess which is understandable when they've got all the food and drink on offer they want in a nice little shelter. Um, but once they were out, you'd never know they'd been in captivity. So for now, we've got our fingers crossed for no major dramas. Um, a few people around got a bit emotional watching the birds come out, I guess, which is understandable given the work that goes into this process and the long lead time and, and the personal investments in it for many people. Um, I guess I, I, I got a bit emotional as well, but as I stood watching these birds flying around, I sort of realised that the, the 44 that we'd let go is the largest group of Regent Honeyeaters in the, the Chilton and northeast Victoria area uh, since the 1990s. So hopefully that's an omen for lots of breeding in the coming months. You're listening to 360 Documentaries on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller and this is Birdland. Which was the first bird to be captured by a cage of words? Or outlined in charcoal in the dark, deep in a rock crevice? Poets, artists, musicians have always used the bird as a metaphor, a messenger, and a way to carry us to another place. Uh, I'm Boyd. I am... work with Alison doing sound sculpture installation projects and I do the sound part of it. Um, I also work as a musician. We live in the Baragarang Valley, which is in the Blue Mountains south of Sydney. I'm Alison Clouston and I'm a visual artist and my work is really influenced by this place. When we've actually set out to work with birds, the two projects that I've done one was recording the, the sound of the superb wren. There was a, a global competition to find the, the bird that could produce the largest number of notes in the shortest amount of time. So there was an American wren that produced a hundred and something notes in eight seconds. So I thought I'd record our local wren in the garden and see how many notes it produced in a certain number of seconds. So I did that, just went out with the tape recorder, recorded this wren, slowed it down, reduced the pitch by five octaves, wrote out the score for it and counted the number of notes <laughs> and it produced 145 notes in six seconds so that was much better than the American wren so <laughs> it sort of felt like we'd sort of a, Australia had once again achieved an Olympic gold and <laughs> It produced a very beautiful melody actually which seemed to be 
quite accurately pitched as much as a bird would be to the, the western scale so I was able to take that, the written music, to the musicians we were using in this project, get them to play it and then I was able to speed them up again and take them up to the pitch of the wren so you in fact get a piano, a sousaphone, a double bass and a guitar playing the, a, a bird call that sounds very much like the original wrens 165 notes in um, 6 seconds <laughs> was one way of producing the bird calls in, in our work. The other way was we collected a whole lot of bird cries, mnemonics and onomatopoeias, so descriptions of bird calls that people use for either remembering or identifying the bird. And so we collected those written descriptions of the bird calls and gave them to various musicians and got them to play their interpretations of those written bird calls and that became the material that was put together for the, the score of Bird Cry. It's really interesting to me that what you've got in a sense when you get the words describing the bird cry and then you get the musicians to interpret those words that what you've got is a double human mediation in the bird cry which is a bit like Chinese whispers. What were you getting at there? If these birds do end up becoming extinct, which is quite likely given the, the current and problems that we have with the environment, then um, we may only be left with these written records and so it sort of seemed interesting to try and get somebody to recreate the sound of the bird from just from the written record and see what they came up with. Each branch in sway sings to an ornament of birds, riding the kick and dip of wind, their feet fists gripped to the strappy spits of cypress heaving under them. This is how the world begins, and it begins again the morning after. No memory of what went before, and yet word perfect. Bellbirds telegraph in concert pitch a one-note hello, and gulls go Geronimo from cliff tops. Swallows rise from seedy wheat, crop circle the barley, and carrion crow, the unbelievers bird, are beaking at roadkill, at small things which did not survive the night. This is how the world began. How does it go on? It starts up in inches, leaning forward into orbit, daily learning the subtle shifts of shade, daily losing them again. Light is rotated, and its feathered monitors alarm into arpeggios. First thrushes hoarsely shout, and calling birds, the dove, the wattle bird, the silver eye, promote it from the cardinal points. With whirs and gigs, the birdie world begins, and our own clockwork responding predicts sun up. It begins with birds, Carolyn Leach Paholsky. This is Regent Honeyeater Diary 4, June 19th, 
It's now about six weeks since we let the first lot of birds go and we've had our first casualties of life in the wild with a couple of our birds uh, taken by goshawks or sparrowhawks. Uh, we know this as the transmitters were found in a pile of beautiful black and yellow feathers under some cherry ballarts which are typical and favourite feeding sites uh, for those species. But in some really good news, uh, we've started to see the first pairing and nesting behaviour. Uh, the undisputed highlight of these is a, a nest half constructed by a wild male and one of our captive release females. Local birding legend Eileen Collins and I uh, found this nest this morning and you know, we were just elated. Um, this is the first known pairing between wild and captive bred birds and is a real shot in the arm for the release program that our, our release birds can be assimilated into the wild. Uh, so now I guess we've got our fingers crossed for some success out of that nest. But unfortunately the forecast isn't real good uh, with some bad weather predicted in the next week or two and at times this can really knock Regent Honey to nesting around and, and put a halt to nesting attempts. If it is then hopefully it won't last too long and, and halt proceedings too much. Like I just find nests incredibly powerful objects. They're just so seductive. Everybody knows that. Like the labour of love of the bird is, is awesome and I think they probably taught humans a lot of stuff like how to make pots. They probably taught humans how to make billums, you know, like those string bags. They probably taught humans about basketry and weaving. I saw a mother bird once. She was um, sitting in her nest. She puffed up her breast and she rotated it and she used her little legs to scurry around and around this little nest that enclosed her body quite tightly and she was smoothing the interior and at the same time her head was reaching out and her little beak was going in and out of the nest like a bobbin on a little sewing machine. Like there were these three movements, there were these little scurrying feet going around the inner nest and the breast smoothing it and puffing it and there was this little stitching beak going around and around the outside. It was incredible to watch. I was fearful of touching birds. They seemed magical and mysterious to me. I imagined that under a bird's feathers was an emptiness, a nothingness. If I dared touch the feathers, there'd be nothing solid underneath. Avian Aversion, Rebecca Newman. Birds fly in a parallel world that just lightly touches our own. Their physical existence is multidimensional, has heights and depths far greater than we can achieve. But for humans, theirs is also a metaphysical world. In being creatures of an unattainable flight, they might also carry us to the longed-for sky places the gods inhabit. I felt something going over me and my hair stood on end and I thought if I believed in spirits I would have thought a spirit just passed over me. That's what I felt, there was this uncanny strange feeling. I didn't see anything, I didn't physically feel anything, I just sensorily I was just totally wakened up and, and then I saw something 
moving in the mist in front of me and then I saw this bird come and settle on the road and it was barely a bird it, I thought, <laughs> it was like some kind of spiritual being you know from another time or another world or a you know and I'm a sort of down-to-earth person but it was it was incredibly poetic what what happened so there's something about birds for sure that, that makes you open to the possibility of what you don't understand, what we don't know. <laughs> I do have a sense of the spirit of a place and birds give voice to that spirit in a way. I mean, they sounded acoustically, but they are also in some way speaking of place. And so in a spare, dry desert environment, the sound of a single curlew just before the sun rises. I heard one that I thought sounded like a, a silver scimitar. It just cut through that evening air. It went straight to my heart. <laughs> and I suppose birds are suggestive of all sorts of things, partly culturally for us and partly perhaps in a more natural way. We grow up from our very first infancy with songs and stories about animals and birds. Birds are important in mythology. They crop up everywhere. They crop up in stories of metamorphosis. They crop up as metaphor, the soul taking wing or as intermediaries between humans and the gods. They can be harbingers of something wonderful, like cuckoos and spring. Um, or they can be harbingers of death, and quite often are. If you think of, of bird behaviour or aspects of birds, such as flight, migration, song, seasonality, all of those are really ideas of transcendence. Flight in particular, you think of flight as being interesting with some birds only landing for nesting, you know, being on the wing all this time. And others that are travelling thousands and thousands of kilometres for breeding, you know, that sort of sense of on the wing, in the sky, in this sort of divine space, as it were. Again, you're looking at things, you know, dance, Many of the birds, you know, just behaviourally will dance and sing in formal and almost ritualistic fashion. So all of these elements can be seen as the spiritual or mythic. Not all birds will look you in the eye, yet some do and they look straight through and you stare wide into wildness their gaze lodges in the back of your brain and you are changed an owl will do that I have seen a powerful owl in the middle of the day half a corella in her claws her hunter's eyes struck mine I walked home slowly stunned and stricken. But to meet in her realm, in the dark, that is another story. To come close to you, I must become this, 
dark, weighted silence, poised, claws empty, ready for the hunt. Listen for the noiseless loft of your night feathers. Watch as your greys melt into the dusk. You are a piece of night broken off and coming towards me. And you fly with a loose softness, as quiet as danger. You fly low over me and vanish. I feel you hovering inside my mind. Now you drop into the dark chasm of my chest and I know that my soul was formed to hold you. My mind was forged in the crucible of you and my spine is a tree where you have perched for thousands of years. Awake with you this long night, hunting with you in this darkness and like the swift mouse made limp and bloodied ready to become something other. For this hunt has gripped me. Being eaten, I eat. I cover my shining bones. Stripped of wings, I wear imagination. Stripped of claws, I wear fear. Stripped of wildness, I patch together feathers and from behind a mask of my own devising, I dance. Powerful Owl may award. Some of us fear the wild, others crave it. These people go in search of experiences with the wild world. For them, it's the presence of birds that makes it authentic wilderness. Sometimes we long for a wild unmediated by humans, pristine, utterly untouched. Other times we yearn for a precious moment in communion with a wild creature and find perhaps a kind of absolution there. And in paying attention to the birds and what they bring to ourselves, we might also find a way to make room for them, allow them the spaces they need to survive. By spending a lot of time in the bush and by spending a lot of time being very still and very quiet, that there is a kind of immersion in the environment that doesn't happen if you're walking through it or observing it from afar or something like that, so that Needing to be quiet, needing to be still, needing to concentrate and listen does a couple of things. It immerses you in that environment and it also, I think, makes you a non-threatening part of that environment so that very often if I've been sitting, sometimes for a couple of hours at a time, recording, I've had birds hop up my legs in rainforest and so on because I'm not moving, I'm not... I mean, when you think about the kind of intrusion that just an ordinary human walking into the bush makes, we're so much louder compared with the delicacy of many of the other movements in the natural world. The thing is, we are part of that world too. 
we just, living an urban existence, have separated ourselves from that world. There's a particular thing that happens to you when you get into the bush and you're quiet and still. For me, it gives me a great sense of being connected to the environment, connected to the place I'm in and connected to the creatures in that place. That, I think, is probably perfectly natural. I felt it, the merest whisper of touch with a soft breath. There followed a tiny warm trickle of blood along my skin, just after my eyes caught a dark shadow, a blur of movement near my clenched fist. Grasping the dead mouse in his bright yellow talons and plucking at it with a strong beak, the black kite flew off. He had accepted my offering and a slight misjudgment on his part was accepted on mine. As a moment of magical contact between an earthbound spirit and a master of the air. Contact, Belinda Hansen. What's interesting about the wild, you know, unmediated by human beings as the concept, is that for non-Indigenous people, in my research, many of the respondents highlighted the wild aspect of birds, or in this case particularly uh, cassowaries, as an assessment of environmental quality. That is, that their presence as a wild animal indicated that all was well in the world, that nature was still producing. So on the other hand, what they were suggesting is that if birds disappear, then all facets of nature may follow in a slow extinction, which is, is linking ultimately to humans as well. Wild animals reflect a wildness that is basically remote to us in our everyday domestic affairs. And I think many of the responses you were getting on your website were people in domestic situation or in city or urban situations where, you know, they would talk about just having what seemed to be wild flocks of birds in their gardens. And when there appears to be this acceptance of your presence, it is seen as very special privilege because it suggests an acceptance by this other. And I think there's sort of a trust that is set up, that is established through some of those experiences that is amazingly powerful. There is a kind of a guilt in the way that we approach the environment, I think. When you have those engagements with birds, is it like a seeking and a granting of forgiveness? It could well be for some a notion of, of a forgiveness, particularly with you know the devastation that's happening within the landscape. Can I justify myself within this broader human population to this animal? A sense of trying to say in a way that I'm not part of that system. I'm a protector rather than a destroyer. Barefoot Sydney child, growing up carefree amongst infinite, shimmering summers. Eucalyptus suburbs shared with myriad birds, their welcome soundscape, a backdrop to our games. 
Jaunty blue wrens, tails erect, chattered cheerfully. Like handmaidens to their handsome princes, the drabber jennies flitted nervously, piping amongst dense shrubbery. Cheeky wagtails, matchbox shaking warning call, the peewee hunting insects in the garden. Startling crack of elusive whipbird, its mate's reply instantly echoed through the shady gully. Cheerful flocks of red-beaked waxbills and dainty darting silver eyes. Melodious honey-eaters trilling their nectar notes in the sunny air. The dash dot dot of unseen spotted pardalotes. Hoppity yellow-breasted robins crisscrossed the mown cooch lawns. Flycatchers pursuing prey amongst the towering trunks. Tree creepers clinging to the bark. The spinebills sipping nectar from the flowers. A cacophony of kookaburras laughing in dusk, announcing the arrival of rain. Straying from its secret creekside paradise, an azure kingfisher suicide-bombed its window-reflected beauty. Neck broken, its resplendent body cradled in a chocolate box went to school with me, where the wonder of its glorious plumage dazzled my friends and we mourned its sad demise. Now it seems an ill omen of a diminished landscape, the silent heritage we will leave for our grandchildren as native bird populations fade away, replaced by feral newcomers. In that faraway Sydney bushland paradise, Creekside, our youthful dramas were played out. Unaware the bird songs could ever be diminished by the rape and pillage of concrete and bitumen encroachment, as human populations burgeon and roads devour the bushland where once we ran barefoot to the creek. Now the remnant forest islands, circumvented by freeways, choked and tangled by invading weeds, bear silent testimony to the grim march of progress. Their branches bare of birds. But the memory of those winged percussive notes haunts my childhood dreaming and leaves a tender void I cannot fill. Lost Idol, Barbara Henry, 1980-1984.